good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Professor Mick Cox in the Department of International Relations at the LSE, and I'm co-director of a centre here called Ideas uh, with Arne Westad, I think sitting in the front row somewhere. Hi, Arne. Um, welcome to this um, to this LSE Ideas uh, public lecture uh, this evening, a full house. To be followed, by the way, uh, for those of you who've got uh, pounds in your pockets, um, with the book signing uh, afterwards uh, outside where Jonathan Powell, our speaker this evening, will uh, sign your book, if you buy it. Um, Niccolo Machiavelli, 1469 to 1527. I won't take away all your best lines. Uh, diplomat, philosopher, musician, playwright, civil servant of the Florentine Republic. Most famous, of course, for that political treatise, The Prince. Uh, I think he wrote it in 1513. Extraordinarily controversial. It wasn't even published until after he died. And it was only circulated privately, I was told, almost like Samus Dat in the old Soviet Union. As I think uh, Jonathan will say this evening, it was nothing if not a highly controversial text. The Catholic Church banned it, put it on the index, and humanists on the other side of the debate saw it as a mere cynicism. Machiavellian then entered the, the, the language, and it's still there today. And Machiavelli exercised great fascination on writers of all sorts of political persuasion. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he thought it was wonderful because it exposed the evils of rulers. Uh, Antonio Gramsci, Marxist in the 1920s, thought this was a very interesting Marxist text, interesting. The Founding Fathers of the United States, Joseph Stalin, I'm told, although I don't know this for sure, had a copy beside his bed. Uh, and even ex-Trotskyists like James Burnham wrote about it. And the speaker tonight is not an ex-Trotskyist, uh, but he's also been reflecting, like many, many other people over the last few centuries, uh, on, on Machiavelli and Machiavellianism. Uh, Jonathan Powell joined the Foreign Office in 1979, uh, but later became uh, and worked very closely uh, with Tony Blair and after Labour selection uh, victory in 1997, became what Wikipedia called a high-profile director of communications alongside with Alistair Campbell and others, and then became a crucial job uh, in Northern Ireland itself. Uh, on Northern Ireland, we had, uh, Jonathan spoke here some time ago on Northern Ireland, an excellent evening I think we had, uh, two or three years ago on his book, Great Hatred, a uh, little room-making piece in Northern Ireland. Uh, this evening he's going to reflect on our old friend uh, Machiavelli, the man whom nobody can quite understand, who has been talked about, reflected on, and so with no further ado, we welcome you, Jonathan, back to the LSE to talk on the new Machiavelli, how to wield power in the modern world. If you give him an LSE welcome, much appreciated. Well, thank you very much indeed, Mick, and uh, it's very nice to be back at Ideas to talk about another book. Um, when I was thinking about this book, I was conscious that there would be a tsunami of memoirs about the Blair years uh, this autumn, so I thought it would probably be a good idea not to write yet another one that would bore the pants off everyone. And it was certainly too soon for a considered history of the Blair years. Um, what's been published so far is raw material for history, is not history itself. But I decided it wasn't too soon to try and draw some lessons from 10 years in, in number 10 Downing Street. And instead of simply uh, producing ideas or lessons of my own, uh, which might be slightly uh, tedious, I decided to look at Machiavelli's lessons and see if there was something still in them. And certainly when I was in Downing Street, uh, the idea of a good handbook on power and how to wield it was a very tempting thing. 
There are plenty of good books on the theory of British government, but almost none on practice and how to actually do it. Um, the only one I could find was The Prince, written some 500 years ago, and I wanted to see if it still held. I think my first point is that uh, Machiavelli is misunderstood. Um, he wasn't at all Machiavellian, in fact. Machiavellian is an insult that the uh, British playwrights of the 16th century came up with, and it's rather stuck. It's now something you use to describe Peter Mandelson, but it's not something you could use to describe Machiavelli himself. <laughs> What Sir Machiavelli was trying to do was draw lessons empirically um, from what he'd observed as a government official and a diplomat in 15th century Florence and his reading of the classics, particularly the Roman Republic. And what makes him interesting is he was the first to escape from the uh, prison of the Augustinian universe. Uh, he wanted to look at reality rather than at um, some religious-based uh, utopia. And he wanted to, as he put it, follow the real truth of things rather than an imaginary view of them. What made him controversial was his view that personal morality could not be applied to governing because men were not all good. Isaiah Berlin summed up his, um, his thinking as a man must choose. One can save one's soul or one can found or maintain or serve a great and glorious state, but not always both at once. He argued that individual interest and collective interest are not always the same thing. And his, his best example in describing what he meant by this was when he wrote, he who quells disorder by a very few signal examples will in the end be more merciful than he from too great leniency permits things to take their course and so result in rapine and bloodshed. For those hurt the whole state, whereas the severity of the prince indiv injures individuals only. So Machiavelli was not amoral or wicked or even devious. Uh, in his book, The Discourses, he makes absolutely clear he had a strong moral position. He favoured republics over monarchies. He believed the virtue of the Roman people in the Republic time was such that they never made a wrong choice, save, uh, I think he said, four times in the choice of tribunes over 400 years. But in The Prince, he was trying to be purely practical in what he wrote about, rather than to make moral judgments. He was looking at what works in politics uh, rather than how he would like politics to be. And he saw politics about as a battle of, for power. Now, some of his lessons are, of course, now irrelevant 500 years later, like how to raise a siege. But what is interesting is how many of them still apply 500 years later. And I think that's because the constancy of human nature, the same as if you go to a Shakespeare play and you listen to it, it still resonates for you. It's because what Shakespeare was writing about as Machiavelli was human nature, and it hasn't changed that much in the meantime. So I took his, his lessons and I tried to see if they worked, if I applied them to the diaries I kept during the 10 years I was in Downing Street from 1997 to 2007. And as I said, what attracted me to Machiavelli was his realism. Uh, it's what makes him modern when he says that many republics and princedoms are imagined which were never seen or known to exist in reality. And he condemns those princes who tried to live by myths because myths are more likely to destroy than to save themselves. And my contention would be that our political system is riddled with myths which are likely to destroy us unless we can actually see through them and question them. One of my particular bugbears, as myths go, is the notion of cabinet governments proposed or um, supported or put forward by a number of retired mandarins who argued that there once was a fabulous system of cabinet government where decisions were taken by all ministers sitting around a table, well informed, chaired by a primus inter pares who was the prime minister, reaching conclusions that which the civil servants agreed. 
Now, my contention would be that that never existed. If you look at the 1970s, the heyday of cabinet government, when cabinet meetings lasted two days rather than two hours, the reason they lasted so long was the Labour Party was badly split ideologically. And what the two sides were doing was slugging it out for power, not having evidence-based policy discussions. If you think about it for very long, if you, 25 people round a table, more than half of whom know nothing about the subject under discussion, with many of the people who need to be at the discussion not present, is not the best place to make a decision about complicated policy issues. It's the right sort of place to make a decision about politics or political ratification, but not policy. And I think the threadbare nature of the argument put forward by the Mandarin tendency is that the focus on furniture. It really doesn't matter if you're sitting in a sofa and not wearing a tie or around a coffin-shaped table and wearing a suit to the nature of the decision you make. The decision depends on having the right information before you, having the right people present, having it challenged, and recording it and making sure that it is implemented. Uh, it's not about titles of the people there. Uh, it's not about the furniture. I think there's a danger uh, amongst some proponents of this argument of seeing form over substance, which is one of the big difficulties of British government. And the difference really is not between cabinet government and no cabinet government, but between strong prime ministers and weak prime ministers. Every time there's been a strong prime minister and he's succeeded by a weak prime minister, that prime minister talks about cabinet government. What he really means is what Machiavelli said, that when a prince is strong enough to stand alone, he can, and when he isn't, he won't be able to. So cabinet government, in my view, probably never existed. If it did, it certainly died in 1979 uh, and wasn't killed by Tony Blair. And to think that it was is actually to misunderstand why we made mistakes in government and therefore to mislead future governments. In looking at Machiavelli, I started with his advice on a, a prince on first coming to power and what he should do if he wants to hang on to power once he's got that. He argues that things look different in the marketplace than they do in the palace. And the first thing that strikes the Prime Minister on coming into number 10 is the illusory nature of power. It's like the crock of gold at the end of the rainbow. It isn't really there when you get there. You get into number 10 and you start pulling on levers and absolutely nothing happens. The guilty secret of number 10 is that far from being power being over-centralised is actually the weakness of number 10 in the government structure. The only power the Prime Minister has is the power to appoint. He doesn't have the big battalions that the other departments have. Bill Clinton rather caught this sense, I think, after a couple of years as president, when he said that he hoped when he died he would come back as someone with real power, like a member of a focus group in Macomb County, Michigan. <laughs> That's what it feels like being Prime Minister too. Tony complained to me about six months into power about the government machine feeling like a shiny Rolls Royce parked in Downing Street that he wasn't really allowed to drive. And that is the essence of government, is trying to find a way that you can get your hands onto the Rolls Royce keys. We started uh, with a struggle for power with the civil service. Now, when I appeared on Newsnight with Robin Butler on Monday, he was very resentful at the suggestion that it was a struggle for power. But I think Machiavelli is right when he sees these sort of relationships as inevitably about power. If you have a new prime minister coming in, that's when the civil service tried to see off the political advisers, as you'll be all too familiar from Yes, Prime Minister, with Mr. Weasel, who you remember from the, those programmes. And there's some wonderful stories uh, from Bernard Donoghue as a political advisor under Harold Wilson, uh, who describes the fact that the civil servants wouldn't allow any political advisers to write on headed paper from number 10. They would have to uh, write on blank paper. If they wanted to read any classified papers, they had to come and stand by the desk of the principal private secretary and read them there, rather than being able to take them away and read them. You do, in those circumstances, need to, to get the civil service's attention. And Mrs Thatcher had a wonderful trick for doing that. When she came to power, 
She asked for a proposal from the civil service on how to privatise BNOC, the national oil company. And after about six months, she had a 300-page paper on why it couldn't be done. She sacked the head of the civil service, Ian Bancroft, and two weeks later, she had a paper that was 30 pages long explaining exactly how to privatise BNOC. <laughs> so you need to get their attention if you're going to be able to, to, to govern effectively. This can extend even to ridiculous things like, like rooms, because proximity to power is power. And Number 10 Downing Street is a very odd place from which to govern. It's more country house than a modern office building. And uh, luckily for me, I was able to sort of assign the, the offices when we, we came in straight away, although we had a terrible battle with Gordon Brown over flats, because Tony Blair wanted to live in the number 11 flat, which was big enough for a family, and then we wanted to, bit by bit, take rooms over from Gordon's flat in number 10. And I remember we had to have an actual written concordat when Leo was born in order to take away a room, and Gordon insisted it should come back once Ewan had left for university. So those are the sort of negotiations you have to get into if you're really going to be exercising power. I noticed I wrote in my diary in 98, when we had to reassign the three rooms closest to Tony to various senior staff, that after five weeks of negotiation, it felt considerably harder to settle this question than Northern Ireland. So that's where power really lies in machiavelli those sort of decisions. What Machiavelli is absolutely clear about is, in government or in power, you need to be bold early on. If action is drastic, you should do it in one fell swoop, not in agonizing stages. And I think I could say that David Cameron has obviously followed that, uh, was trying to follow that edict in, in what he's been doing by bringing in radical change early to take the political pain uh, and the hope of benefiting from it later. We too had a number of radical steps, like the uh, uh, independence of the Bank of England, an idea which first occurred to Tony Blair when listening to Roy Jenkins talking in the House of Commons during a debate on the, uh, on the Treasury when Tony was a junior Treasury spokesman, uh, rather than Ed Balls's idea, as Ed has uh, suggested. We changed Prime Minister's questions, which actually may not sound that important, but is crucial to a Prime Minister, changing it from twice a week to once a week. Uh, a sort of change you can only make when you come into power. If you leave it to later, there's absolutely no chance of being able to make it at all. You have to do it when people are flat on their back. But we failed in many respects to take the radical steps we should have taken early on. For example, we had an opportunity to make a permanent alliance with the Liberal Democrats to reunite the progressive forces of the 19th century. And Paddy Ashdown called Tony Blair on the, um, uh, on, on the day of the election, and both of them funked the decision at that stage, which is a pity. And one of the reasons we did it was because of the opposition of the Labour Party to AV. So it's quite amusing to see the Labour Party strongly supporting AV in the 2010 election. Um, we also were, were too timid, I fear, on, on public service reform. We were too focused, really, on trying to be the first Labour government elected to a full second term. It had never happened before, and we wanted to be in that position. And as a result, we didn't spend our political capital early enough. Machiavelli talks, interestingly, about the dangers of a negative mandate for power, the sort of thing that the Conservatives have now, when they haven't won an election, but everyone else has been defeated. He warns that, merely out of discontent with the former government, he will have the greatest difficulty in keeping his supporters and friends with him. We had the opposite problem, which is a positive mandate. If you have a really strong positive mandate, what happens is everyone projects onto you all of their wishes. You may not have said anything about their wishes, but they believe that's what you're going to do when you come into power. And of course, you can't actually do it once you're in power. And bit by bit, you disappoint them every time you take a difficult decision. And that's what happened to us from 1997 onwards. Interestingly, Mrs. Thatcher was a series of U's, if you like. When she came into power, she'd be relatively popular. She'd go into a deep trough of unpopularity each of her terms and come out again to win. 
Whereas the Labour Party started with a high level of popularity in 97, went up a little bit at the time of Princess Diana, and then carried on a slow decline through to 2005. Um, the positive mandate can be as dangerous as a, a, as a negative one in those respects. Machiavelli devotes most of the prince, of course, to the qualities of leadership for a prince and how he should, uh, how he should in fact, lead. These lessons, I would say, could apply to leadership in any field, a field of academia or business or military as, as well as to politics. What he says above all is a prince requires courage and intelligence. And by courage, what he means is decisiveness, the ability when faced by a difficult decision to quickly reach a clear decision. Tony Blair demonstrated that very clearly when he decided to run for the leadership when John Smith died, even though Gordon Brown was the more senior partner. He did it when he decided to change Clause 4 at his first Labour Party conference in '94, despite the advice of his colleagues not to. Uh, Gordon Brown demonstrated the opposite uh, in his decision not to run against John Smith in '92, which was really his chance to, to become leader. What Machiavelli complained about above all else was his old boss, Piero Soderini, the ruler of Florence, who could never make up his mind, when confronted with problems intellectualised, resisted when he should have yielded, and gave way when he should have resisted. And that's the problem you get in leadership, that people who cannot make their minds up find themselves actually played out of time. He talks about irresolute princes who, to escape immediate danger, commonly follow the neutral path in most instances to their destruction. And you think of Gordon Brown's first Labour Party conference in 2007, and he's agonising about whether or not to call an election. That's exactly what Machiavelli was talking about. If you simply can't make up your mind while your young Turks like Ed Balls are calling on you to call an election, on the other side, the greybeards like Jack Straw are calling on you not to have an election, you'll find the decision taken for you and you will find yourself in serious trouble. Because it was that moment that Gordon Brown went into unpopularity and from which he never recovered, nor did the Labour Party from 2007 onwards. People very sensibly don't pay much attention to politics. They employ politicians to do that for them. But occasionally there are moments of cut through when they look at politicians and they just see something in their soul. And I fear for Gordon that was a moment when people looked, saw something they didn't like and never changed their minds again. Machiavelli is clear that once a decision has been taken, you have to stick to it. You must not be shown to be irresolute. And there's a lovely story about Bill Clinton when he was governor of Arkansas. And he decided to... Um, to veto a, a particular bill that had been presented to him. It was a Friday evening, and he sent it over with his state troopers to the office of the Speaker of the State um, Senate, stuck it underneath the door. On the Saturday, he was lobbied by a number of people who persuaded him it was a mistake to veto the bill. So he had to send his state troopers back with a um, metal coat hanger, which they straightened out into a hook, and pulled the bill back, brought it out again, and unvetoed it. Um, so you do need to watch out for, 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 for getting your mind changed. You should try and stick to your, your decisions once you've taken them. Of course, you can argue, and no doubt we'll come into this in discussion, that boldness can turn into complete folly in some circumstances. But Machiavelli is absolutely clear if he's presented with a choice, he would better to have an impetuous than a terminally cautious leader, because Fortuna, one of his gods in writing The Prince, favours those who treat her roughly rather than those who are too timid. By intelligence, the second of the two key qualities he expected in leaders, what, what uh, Machiavelli meant was not intellectual pyrotechnics, but emotional intelligence, the power of instinct. Uh, Roy Jenkins had a rather nice backhanded compliment for Tony, which he'd stolen from a comment on uh, Roosevelt, which was that Tony had a second-class intellect but a first-class temperament. And in some senses, that's what you want your leader to have. It doesn't matter too much whether they have a first-class intellect, but you do need them to have a temperament that is suitable for, for governing, that has the right sort of political instincts. Now, Tony Blair demonstrated that particularly interestingly in the case of the death of Princess Diana. Um, it wasn't 
an, e an easy moment for many reasons, not least because we couldn't wake him up, because he'd just gone back up to his constituency house after the election for the first time, and we didn't have a phone in the house. So the duty clerk, whose job it was to tell him, kept ringing with, with no joy. They uh, eventually had to call the policeman outside the house and newly built hut and persuade him to go and wake him up, but the policeman wasn't going to be conned by that sort of uh, joke. We would finish off his career. So we eventually had to call the chief constable of Durham and get him to go and talk to the policeman and persuade the policeman. So the first that Tony knew of the death of, of Princess Diana was a policeman in his bedroom standing there over him. Um, but what Tony did there was not just to come up with the phrase people's princess, which did capture the moment, but it was actually to foresee where the public mood was going to go. It showed that sort of uh, ability to see where public opinion is going to go, to corral it and lead it. Because at that moment, there was an interesting question about republicanism and where it would go. And he managed to help see that off by foreseeing what, what would happen in a way I think the royal family certainly didn't. It certainly stood him in good stead in, in the United States. I remember him telling me in 2006 when he'd been on holiday in Florida, he'd gone into a restaurant and uh, one of the diners came up to him, shook him warmly by the hand and told him he'd been absolutely wonderful in the film The Queen. <laughs> um, there, there are other qualities that, that a leader needs to, to have to, to be a great leader and those can be acquired unlike courage and, and emotional intelligence. One of them is, is competence which you might think obvious but, but isn't always. If you think of Ronald Reagan for example, he had the vision in spades but very little executive ability to make things happen. If you think of Jimmy Carter, he was very good on details and getting things to happen but rather less good on, on, on the vision. When people really expect you to have this competence is uh, when there is a, a crisis. They expect crisis management from the leader. And the one time that our popularity in the first term dipped uh, well into the red was during the Hauliers' strike, when a number of lorry drivers managed to close down uh, the uh, refineries of, of the United Kingdom uh, in a remarkable way. And looking back at my diaries, what interests me and what's an interesting lesson for, for future governments in this is how long it takes before you realise how serious the problem is. This uh, crisis started, we kind of thought it was a bit of a joke, we thought the police could deal with it. The rise in the price was actually nothing to do with tax, it was to do with the rise in the price of crude oil. And it was really by only the Monday evening that I realised quite how serious it was when I called the chairman of the oil companies and they told me, did I realise that in this country the fuel tanks of the cars were many tens of times the capacity of the fuel stations. And if everyone takes the decision to fill up their car, they'll be empty within several hours. And indeed they were. I don't think people even now realise quite how close we came to shutting the country down at that point. Um, ATMs were just about to run out of, of cash, uh, hospitals were about to close down, we were about to assume emergency powers and move the military in to, to make things happen. We were saved at the very last minute by the strike breaking down. Interestingly also, the strike demonstrated the power of modern technology because very few lorry drivers, a handful of them, managed to bring this about simply by using the internet and mobile phones. They had no real organisation. It was a loose association of people communicating in that way and that's what uh, very nearly shut the country down. The lesson that I drew from it, one is you have to notice that these things are happening quickly and be prepared for them. Um, but you also have to be prepared to stand up in those circumstances and not give in to the pressure that will be put on you to concede. As an interesting example of what's going on in France, we're up to now, because the French government has always feared the anarchy lurking a few centimetres underneath the surface of French society has always given in. It would be interesting to see if that's what Sarkozy will do, or whether he will tough it out in the same way when faced by uh, the closure of the, 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 the um, fuel depots in, in France. I won't touch on all the, the, the qualities that uh, Machiavelli talks about, but perspective is one that he really stresses. Um, 
we always repeat Harold Wilson's lesson that a week is a long time in politics, but people very rarely reflect on what it means. It is that you, things will not look the same day to day and you have to keep your nerve through a crisis. If you react as if when you're at the centre of a crisis everything is the now, you will take the wrong decision. I remember Tony saying to me after, again, about a year, that he wished he'd studied something useful for his job at university rather than law and had studied history. And that certainly was something that would have warmed the cockles of Machiavelli's heart. His disciple, James Harrington, one of the Commonwealth writers, um, said it's impossible uh, if you don't know what has been, you can never tell what will be or may be. And you need to have some sense of historical perspective if you'll be able to do the job of leader properly. One of Machiavelli's more famous dictums or lessons is the need for a leader to be a fox as well as a lion. Uh, he argued that you need to have the courage of a lion to get things done, but you also have to have the guile of a fox to escape the traps that will be set for you. And an interesting example of that I thought with, with Tony was in the 2005 election, where the, Michael Howard had been using immigration against us as a, uh, a, a battering ram, what they called the dog whistle campaign, where they tried to summon back the support of right-wing uh, diehards by being just on the edge of what was possible to say in British politics about immigration. And we were losing, losing support as a result of it. Tony decided he had to make a firm speech on immigration, uh, explaining why immigration was right, why we'd been right to allow it, the benefits it had brought to the British economy. And he went and made the speech. And I was in the Labour Party headquarters on Victoria Street when he made it. And almost uniquely, the whole place went quiet listening to him making the speech. And at the end, it erupted into applause, feeling he'd done the right thing. So that was the lion part of it. But when he came back, I, I said to him, I noticed that the teleprompter didn't seem to be working because a number of occasions he stopped reading from the screens and looked down at his speech to, to make it. He said, no, the teleprompter was fine. There were certain parts of the speech I didn't want reported by the television news, so I looked at the notes so they wouldn't use that bit in their reports of the, and the speech that I made. So you need to have those, those two skills. The most obvious example of the benefit of it, I guess, is Northern Ireland, where what you might call constructive ambiguity was the approach that we adopted in order to get two sides who didn't really want to agree at all into an agreement they would never have signed up to in the first place by taking them there elliptically. Some people criticise that as a, as a sort of bit of black magic, but actually it's totally essential if you're going to, uh, to, to solve a problem like Northern Ireland. Uh, and the last point I'd make about leadership, I guess, is the difference between conviction politicians and, and not conviction politicians. I remember when John Major became uh, Foreign Secretary the first time, he summoned a number of officials in to discuss a particular policy problem, I forget now quite what it was, and he asked them to draw up a list of pros and cons of the particular decision, and they all sat there and wrote their decisions down and made the decision on the basis of which was the longer list, which is not the right way to offer leadership. Mm. On the other hand, Tony talks in his book about what he says I called his Messiah complex, which was actually Mo Molum saying to me that Tony thought he was fucking Jesus, which is a more polite way of putting it. Um, but there is something of that in a conviction politician. If you're actually going to change things, you do have to have a great deal of belief in yourself, although hopefully, like skiers, you need to, max, you need to balance the belief with a certain amount of caution. Of course, in Britain, we don't have a prince. We, have, uh, we don't have um, uh, one ruler. We have collective government. I've talked briefly about cabinet government, but maybe we come back to that in, in, in discussion. But I think it's worth saying a word or two about the civil service, which, as we always say, is the best civil service in the world. Um, and the reforms from the uh, 19th century, the Northcote Trevelyan reforms, were very great reforms, although it's interesting it hasn't been reformed in a major way since. What it always struck me, having been a civil servant for 16 years before I became a political appointee, is that it was a bit like a monastic order. Most people still join it when they leave university and leave it when they retire. 
It's very impermeable to outside ideas. Doesn't have, doesn't change ideas in the way that um, uh, other civil services perhaps do. The um, this came home to me particularly. I remember when we were in our first couple of weeks in Downing Street, the Home Office came in to brief us on crime. And they produced a series of slides that showed that crime would rise inexorably. And when we asked them why, they said because the economy was growing, so there'd be more stuff to nip. <laughs> so I asked them what would happen if uh, the economy went down. And they said, well, crime would go up. And I said, well, why? Because there'd be more stuff, there'd more people who needed to nick things, so it would definitely go the other way. There's a certain fatalism that builds up in the civil service. <coughs> and it really needs to bring in outsiders to try and change its skill set and its mindset. When we tried to bring in an outsider to head the civil service, we were seen off by the cabinet secretary who told us it would be a constitutional outrage and would lead to um, the absolute collapse of the state. But I do still think that the trouble with the civil service is, unlike in many other countries, including the United States, it's still too impermeable. It needs to have people to come in if it's going to change properly. Now, I got into trouble before we even got into Downing Street by talking about the need to move from a feudal system to a Napoleonic system, by which I meant that the trouble with government in Britain is that the barons who wrote, rule the actual departments have the troops, they have the budgets, and they can do really what they like. The only power the Prime Minister has is to dismiss them. And I wanted to move to a system where at least all of the departments were moving in the same direction, where you had some sort of central power. Interestingly, again, Machiavelli talks about this when comparing the French system of feudalism, where the king's power was... Uh, passed through the barons who had independent power and could stand up to him versus Italy where the king ruled uh, supreme and could talk or could relate to each and every citizen in the country. I, I still do think that the British system has a problem in that it doesn't all drive in the same direction. There needs to be a better effort through the cabinet office not to act as a referee between warring factions but actually as a system of transmission of ideas from the centre to the various bits of government and ensuring that the machine is driving all in one direction. We looked a number of times at creating a bigger and stronger Prime Minister's office while Tony Blair was Prime Minister, uh, twice in particular where it very nearly happened, but decided to reject them. I remember there was an official from the Kanzleramt, from the German um, Prime Minister's office, who came to work with us for about three weeks to study us before writing a report on how they should reform the Kanzleramt. And he said that whatever we did, we shouldn't go the way and the Kanzleramt with its big bureaucracy, huge um, top-down structure replicating the government in miniature, and stay small and uh, uh, flexible in the way that number 10 is, and I think that is right. The one change that we did consider but didn't put through, which I would revisit if I were Prime Minister, would be the Office of Management and the Budget. We looked twice at actually taking out of the Treasury the public spending powers and putting them together with the powers of appointment that sit in the Cabinet Office, because at the moment in the centre of government you have two different focuses. You have the Treasury... You have the Prime Minister and the Cabinet Office. They often set different objectives to departments which conflict and you'd be far better off if you could have it centralised in one place. We couldn't do it because, of course, it would have been seen as an act of war with, with Gordon Brown. But I think that a, a rational Prime Minister in the future would try and do that to make the centre of government more coherent. Um, <coughs> the, um, all leaders are surrounded by a court, whatever they call it, whether in politics or elsewhere. And what Machiavelli was clear about is the need that flatterers should be shunned. If you end up with a bunch of yes-men around you, if you end up with a pensée unique where there's only one view and it's not challenged, you'll be in real trouble. He suggested that what you should do is take on board people who will um, be as challenging as possible and encourage them and tell them to be rewarded the more challenging they are, but they must do it in private. If they do it in public, they bring about contempt, which is the worst sin for a leader. 
I used to laugh when the newspaper said that uh, uh, number 10 under Tony Blair was full of yes men because they could hardly have had people more abrasive than Alistair Campbell or indeed myself in dealing with Tony. And I think that there was a, a sort of misunderstanding of what was going on because we kept our views private even if we were being challenging. Machiavelli correctly points out that the danger then is you have a cacophony of views and a leader needs to be able to work out from those different views what he should do rather than having just one view. Uh, what, what Tony Blair would call triangulation, I guess, listening to lots of different people and then working out his course on the basis of what lots of different people say. I decided on the need for a chief of staff having observed what happened under John Major and indeed under Mrs. Thatcher to a certain extent. There was no one person under the Prime Minister who brought together all the different bits of number 10. There was, no, uh, there was a political side to number 10, there was a civil service side to number 10. On a Friday evening, there'd be an unseemly competition between the different sides to see who could have the last word on a policy paper. They'd stay late, and the political secretary would stick a note on, and the policy director would stay and stick a note on. And even later, the cabinet secretary and the principal private secretary would get the really final word. So I saw the need to have someone in number 10 who could actually make the trains run, who could coordinate between the different bits. In doing this, you really become quite intimate with the leader in a way that you wouldn't necessarily want or expect. I felt it was sometimes a bit like the levee of Louis XIV when I would go up to see Tony as he got dressed or had his breakfast or got out of his bath to take, it, my, take my instructions uh, from him along with Alistair. And I started inheriting his shirts and his uh, ties because I hadn't got time to go and buy my own. My brother Charles worked for Mrs. Thatcher for eight years as, his foreign policy, as her foreign policy advisor. And I noticed too that he began to look more and more like Mrs. Thatcher as every morning <laughs> he went up to her. So it's a bit like dogs look like their owners. You become to think and look like your owners. And you need to be able to do that because you need to be able to take decisions for them um, when, when they're not there or not able to take the decision. Of course, you don't always take the right decisions. I made a terrible mistake over uh, General Dannett that... Um, uh, the private secretary for foreign affairs came to see me with the um, suggestion that Richard Dannett take over as uh, chief of the general staff and he said we don't really need to ask Tony this do we and I said no no there's no need it seems fine so I signed off on it and we agreed to his appointment uh, three weeks later uh, Richard Dannett launched an unpremeditated attack on us while we were at um, St Andrew's negotiations on, on Northern Ireland and uh, we were contemplating whether or not to sack General Dannett. I blamed Tony and said it was all his fault for appointing Dannett, having forgotten what had happened. And he said, no, no, I never appointed No one asked me about him. I went back to look at the papers. I realised I had actually nodded the thing through without ever asking him of it. So you may make mistakes in doing that, but your job is to, to be there to make the decisions and above all to say no, because Prime Ministers like saying yes. That's how they got to be Prime Ministers. And they need someone else to be able to say no and prevent the things happening that, that, that should not happen. They need a sort of can-do spirit, because they've got the whole civil service to stop things happening. They need someone who can actually make things happen. But you need to be a little bit careful. I used to think about uh, a very distant ancestor of mine, Hugh de Morville, who was one of the four knights who murdered Thomas a Becket, who'd taken the instructions from his leader a little bit too far and a bit too quickly. So on the whole, it's worth thinking about them before you actually, um, before you actually implement the decisions. Gordon Brown abolished the, the, the job of, uh, of Chief of Staff, but David Cameron, I notice, has reappointed it. I'd be surprised if it disappears from British politics. I suspect that it will, will always be here. Um, what Machiavelli concludes about the court of a, of a prince, which is just as true as any other ruler, I think, is it is an unerring rule and of universal application that a prince who is not wise himself cannot be well advised by others. It follows that good counsels, whensoever they arise, have their origin in the prudence of the prince, not the prudence of the prince in wise counsels. So it's the, the staff that get the blame and the prince who, who is wise, and that's probably the right way that it should be. Um, Machiavelli is very clear on how you should handle a rival or a dauphin. 
Um, now, in British politics, the relationship between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister is the key relationship in government. And it's good when there's constructive tension between the two jobs. Mrs. Thatcher, for example, was at her best when she had Nigel Lawson or a strong mm. Chancellor standing up to her, less good when there was a weak Chancellor. It is, of course, possible to have too much of a good thing, and that's what we had from 1997 to 2007. <laughs> Machiavelli was very clear to his advice to Tony Blair on what he should do about uh, a strong rival like this, and he says that you can't leave in place someone who feels that he's been despoiled of his principality. You have to deal with them. He says that malevolence is not vanquished by time, nor placated by any gifts. And he talks about Brutus's sons. Now, this is not et tu, Brute, it's Junius Brutus, the person who brought about the end of the Roman monarchy and the beginning of the Republic, who having done so, uh, his sons then tried to mount a coup against the Republic and re-establish the monarchy, and he, being a virtuous man, presided over the trial at which they were executed. And uh, the point is that if you have, however close you are to someone, if they're about to bring down the regime, you have to deal with them and deal with them firmly. Machiavelli also had very clear advice to Gordon Brown, which was, if you're not strong enough to become leader, you need to be obsequious to the leader's wishes and take pleasure in everything in which the leader takes pleasure. <laughs> if you do that, it will assure you that your life is safe and allow you to enjoy the prince's good fortune and ample opportunity of fulfilling your intentions if you bide your time. Unfortunately for all of us, uh, Tony didn't take that advice and, and nor did Gordon, and we ended up with some of the difficulties that we, we did between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. In a conflict which I don't really think was about ideology, although we can discuss that if you like, um, there were differences about tax credit versus spending money on health and education, but really it was about the job, about the desire of, of Gordon to take over the job to get Tony out rather than to wait. Um, the, um, the actual experience of this for me was quite something because as the Chief of Staff you have to monitor all the phone calls of the Prime Minister and listen into these conversations. But once you're monitoring a conversation, you can't actually drop out of the call without making a loud beeping noise, which means that the two people know that you've been in on the call and can't talk anymore. So I would listen to some of these, these conversations, which would go on for hours and hours, and you'd get so bored of the circular conversation, you'd go for a long walk with the noise blaring out of your shirt pocket as you were walking along listening to it. I remember Tony calling, on one, calling me one evening on a Sunday evening and saying he just spent three hours with, with, with Gordon. And I asked him what on earth he could have to talk about for three hours. And he asked me if I'd ever been in love to which I responded, not with a man. <laughs> you can debate forever whether or not there was a deal or, 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 or a deal between the two of them. Um, the fact is that Gordon never heard the quid pro quo for the deal of, of, of Tony going, and that was that he cooperate on the, the reform programme. There's a rather nice story that Tony tells in his book about the actual first meeting between them when they decided that uh, he would run for leadership rather than, rather than Gordon, which wasn't in a restaurant in Islington at all, but in a house in... Uh, in Scotland, the house of a friend of his in Edinburgh, and they had a long, rather heated meeting, and then Gordon stalked off without saying anything. And after a couple of minutes, Tony was a bit worried. After five minutes, he was getting a bit worried. He carried on looking at the books on the shelves, and the phone rang, and uh, he didn't pick it up because it was his friend's house. But then a plaintive voice came onto the answering machine saying, Tony, it's Gordon here. I'm locked in the loo. Can you come and let me out? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, he did, and the rest is history. Um, the, the conclusion that Machiavelli draws from all of this is that you're better off without a Dauphin, or if you've got to have a Dauphin, you want to have two or more to make sure that you play them off against each other rather than having just one. And I think it's worth thinking about, for example, David Miliband's decision, having lost to Ed Miliband, to stand down and not be in his way, because that's exactly the right sort of decision, where you don't have someone constantly second-guessing you, constantly being a, a focus of opposition. Machiavelli is clear in politics that it's better to be feared than to be loved. Um, and again, I think that holds pretty good in, in modern politics. 
Uh, Neil Kinnock or Michael Foote were much beloved in the Labour Party. Uh, Mrs Thatcher wasn't much beloved in the country, but was respected. Tony Blair himself went from being Bambi when he was first elected to being Stalin when he left. People accused him of being too addicted to opinion polling and following focus groups when he was first Prime Minister and then said that he was paying no attention at all to public opinion and trampling over it later on. I think in both cases there's a misunderstanding. He was following his instinct, but people just didn't like the decisions he was taking, taking later. I think there's actually a wider misunderstanding about the role of the three new Labour figures. The, um, about that's Gordon, Peter and Tony. They actually played rather different roles than the public thought. Gordon's metier and strength was tactics. He was a brilliant political tactician at turning anything to an advantage on a particular day. He wasn't a long-term thinker. Uh, Peter, rather than just a spin doctor, was actually a very effective long-term political planner to turn a political strategy into an implementable political plan. He was a genius. And Tony was the guy with the vision. So the three of them actually played rather different roles than people thought. And when they worked together, they were an unbeatable team, a bit like Lennon and McCartney. And when they split, then you have your problems and you get wings. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, minister, the choice of ministers, Machiavelli says, is the best way to, to judge a prince. And, given that's the only thing a Prime Minister can do, appoint ministers, certainly a way to judge a, a Prime Minister. There is luckily in, in British politics a thing called the Ministerial Salaries Act, or you'd find that uh, Prime Ministers would appoint absolutely everyone on their back benches a minister to make them into the payroll vote. Luckily no one's had the, the idea of changing that and reducing the number from the existing 120, for which there are only real jobs for maybe about 30 or 40 of them. Uh, you can get in a terrible muddle in doing reshuffles, as I found, uh, you often, there are very, very complicated sub-categories um, of people you can appoint. Quite often we'd find ourselves having appointed too many ministers. You then have the unpleasant job of having to call ministers and tell them, although you've appointed them, they've got a choice. They can either resign as a minister or they can be unpaid. We had a particular problem with this with Meg Munn, who we appointed minister for women. Uh, we then had the difficult job of explaining why she was unpaid for two years, since we, her job was to promote equal pay for women in the... <laughs> So you can quite often find yourself quite different. We had a similar problem with reshuffles. When you're doing junior ministers, you get lots and lots of them backed up on, on the phone. And we, um, uh, you sometimes make mistakes about them. And uh, we once had the terrible situation where we'd asked the switchboard to get Bernard Donoghue, who is a rather distinguished uh, member of the Labour Party, and instead they put through Brian Donoghue to the Prime Minister, just about to be appointed Minister of Agriculture. Luckily, Tony realised immediately who it was and engaged him in a conversation about the political situation. And we found out later, rather luckily, that uh, Brian, who stopped on the motorway hard shoulder to have this conversation, had told all his friends it was amazing the Prime Minister had time to have a conversation about politics in the middle of a reshuffle. You know how close we got to, uh, to doing it. I feel that like I'm probably talking a bit too, too, too long, so I'll just uh, do a little bit more and then uh, open up for questions, to try and avoid looking like I'm avoiding questions. Um, there's just one quite nice aspect of politics, which is you often spend a long time trying to avoid doing things, and we spent a long time trying to avoid banning fox hunting. Uh, and eventually we were given the choice, we could either have our education reform voted for by the PLP and give them fox hunting, or not ban fox hunting and not get our education reforms. <laughs> but watching the desperation of Tony to get uh, out of the, the problem of uh, banning fox hunting was, was, was quite wonderful. He considered one stage county-wide referendum, so you'd have a referendum in a particular county, so you'd have to stop hunting when you crossed from Wiltshire into uh, Hampshire. But my particular personal favourite was when he suggested that we have the hands equipped with electric collars and the huntsmen would follow on a quad bike, so when they got to the fox, they would issue electric shocks to all the hands to stop them killing the fox, and the huntsmen would then shoot it. 
which struck me as quite a long way to go to avoid banning fox hunting, although we did end up with a typically British compromise of, of we pretended to ban fox hunting and they pretended we banned it and they carried on fox hunting, which is a lovely, lovely irony of it. It's also worth mentioning a word about Prime Minister's Questions, which is a strange thing. It's um, a ceremony that US presidents absolutely love. Whenever they speak to a British Prime Minister, they always say how wonderful Prime Minister's Questions is, and they watch it on C-SPAN in Washington. I can tell you it's not at all wonderful for the poor person having to do it. They don't enjoy it at all. Harold Macmillan used to regularly throw up before he went on to perform. It is the most extraordinary place because you're very close uh, to the people who are shouting at you and they shout the most extraordinary things that you wouldn't pick up on television, but things that would certainly not be repeatable. Uh, and they do it. And the pantomime aspect of it does you no good at all with the public. The public who see it hate Prime Minister's questions. They think the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition are behaving badly, but you have to do it for your backbenchers, for your troops, because they uh, simply um, uh, uh, see it as the way in which the, 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 the um, duel can be fought out, and their mood will go up or down depending on how you've done on the day. Cameron, I remember, David Cameron, when he became Leader of the Opposition, announced that he was going to end the pantomime uh, version of the Prime Minister's questions and start asking questions he really wanted the answer to. But that lasted for about a week after people had la laughed at him and he soon reverted to the, the old type. Um, I think I will sort of, because I got, uh, I'd like to have time for questions, I'll just go so I think, straight to my conclusion, um, for which I apologise, but maybe you can touch the other things in, in discussion. Um, what brings leaders down in the end is, is hubris. Um, Machiavelli talks about the government of Florence needing to reconstitute itself every five years. And I think we have now got a sort of term limits in, in British politics, as you have by constitution in the United States and other countries. It now exists here. You can't really serve more than two terms, about 10 years as prime minister, if you want to leave on your own terms. Um, I watched the effect of hubris on Mrs. Thatcher. As I say, my brother worked for Mrs. Thatcher as her foreign policy advisor. I remember going to the 1989 uh, economic summit in Paris uh, as a junior official and being in the back of a motorcade. And in 1989, Mr. Thatcher had made some disparaging remarks about the French Bill of Rights, saying it was 100 years younger than ours and not nearly as good. Mm. Uh, they were celebrating the, the anniversary of it. <laughs> and uh, we drove in the motorcade through a big demonstration in the Place de la Concorde. And when we got to the British Embassy, which has a circular um, drive, the cars all drove in and my brother and Mrs. Thatcher got out of the Embassy Rolls-Royce and I got out of the last car right next to him. And I heard Mrs. Thatcher say to my brother, wasn't it nice to see all those people waving at me? <laughs> and the trouble is, in those circumstances, if you've been in Downing Street a long time, you do get cut off. And you can't stay in touch forever. And she was back there a few months later, uh, having been defeated or having uh, suffered uh, in the uh, leadership election and out of power. If you, if you stay too long, you get cut off and you will not be able to, to um, uh, remain as an effective prime minister. Um, Machiavelli concludes that uh, Fortuna plays a great part in this. Fortuna is the mistress of one half of her actions or a little less. But great leaders uh, are the ones who have the luck and can take advantage of it. He says that it was the, while it was the opportunities that made these men fortunate, talking about great leaders, it was their own merit that enabled them to recognise these opportunities and turn them to account, to the glory and prosperity of their countries. Now, there are very few prime ministers in the last century who, who fit into this category. I, I would argue that Tony was one of four or five who did. Um, the point of my book is to try and write the record on Machiavelli, who I say is misunderstood, and Tony Blair, who I think is misunderstood. I'm probably about 500 years too late to rehabilitate Machiavelli from the caricature he's been assigned to, and certainly two, 20 years too early to, to rehabilitate Tony Blair, at least in Britain. But I do think there are public services and a bunch of other things will look quite different in 20 years' time when the real assessment is, is made in history than they do now. 
I do think that history will be, be kind to Tony Blair. I, I wouldn't want to go the whole way with Machiavelli in all of his, um, all of his series in The Prince. Um, he, he did get this weird obsess, obsession with Cesar Borgia, who he saw as this wonderful example of a leader, who was in fact a very bloodthirsty thug, who eventually got chucked out of power and ended up dying in Spain. And he particularly relished what he did with a guy called Ramiro Dorco. Ramiro Dorco was the person he put in charge of the Romagna once he'd taken over the Romagna. Joseph Borgia was the illegitimate son of a pope who became a, a, a potentate in, in Italy. And he managed to conquer the Romagna around Rome. And he put Ramiro Dorco in charge of it, who carried out the most bloodthirsty campaign to suppress it, killing people left, right and centre, and became quite unpopular. So one morning, the people of the city came out and discovered on the middle of the square the body of Romero Dorco, his head, and a block and an axe and lots of blood. And by this, uh, Machiavelli felt that um, uh, Borgia had taught a very good lesson. He'd shown that this was the person to be blamed for all the unpopular measures, and he'd dealt with him firmly. And he'd also made it quite clear what happens to you if you get crossed. I, I wouldn't argue that that's necessarily going to work in, in modern politics. <laughs> The point of politics in the end actually is about idealism, about ideas and trying to change things and get elected for those reasons. But the point of writing this book is that you won't actually be able to change things unless you understand there is such a thing as the art of government and you try and see through some of the myths that get thrown up in politics and try and make the, the system work in a, in a more systematic and effective way. Let me just leave you with, with one, one hanging thought from Machiavelli, which is one of the nice subtle thoughts he leaves there, which is that prudence in government consists of knowing how to distinguish between degrees of disadvantage. Thank you very much. Yeah, okay, thank you very much, Jonathan. I think we'll, uh, we'll move straight into questions and answers. Uh, well, let me ask the first question. Uh, you mentioned the question of prudence. Yeah. Um, I'm bound to ask the question in relationship to the Iraq war. How, in, in terms of, not just what you would think yourself, but in terms of if Machiavelli had been sitting next to uh, Tony, as opposed to yourself and one of twelve people, where does the prudence come into that? Well, what Machiavelli Just to start. Yeah, yeah. Now, what Machiavelli very clearly advised uh, leaders was you have to be a staunch friend or a thorough foe. Right. What he couldn't stand was people trying to be neutral. What he wouldn't have stood with someone like Harold Wilson on Vietnam, yes. neither being for it or against it. He argued if you're against Vietnam, go out there and say you're against Vietnam, oppose the Americans on it. If you're for Vietnam, then go and fight it with them. Yeah. As it was, he managed to render himself, Harold Wilson, that is, completely irrelevant uh, with Lyndon Johnson and to be right. ignored by the American policy. So he would have said, whatever you think, go with what you think. So in other words, if you're opposed to Iraq, don't sort of just go along with the Americans and don't send your troops yeah. in, but actually either speak out against it and stop them doing it, or go with them if you think that's the right thing to do. Yeah, okay. that's good, great. Okay, okay. can we take um, a gentleman over here in white shirt? I'll take a couple together and then a gentleman down here with the blue. Then I'll come over here, yeah. Have we only got one microphone? Is it on? Okay, Is there a microphone over here? We've only got the one mic? Good Lord. One upstairs. Have the cuts been implemented already? One upstairs, too. Oh, God. That's quick. <laughs> Hi. Okay. 
Uh, well, I enjoyed the uh, talk. Uh, I, I've always thought that one of the, the, the wisest uh, pieces of writing on uh, the practice of politics is Weber's Politics as a Vocation, where he talks about the ethic of responsibility and the ethic of conviction, and the need to try and combine the two. What he was arguing is sometimes the desire to... The, the key insight, I think, is that evil can follow from acts that are well motivated and you sometimes in order to achieve good ends you have to do evil practices and and I always used to feel that um, uh, Tony Blair hadn't quite grasped that and I always used to cringe when he said well I've got to do the right thing and it seemed to me that he missed the point of of Weber's uh, account of the need to somehow try and reconcile the ethic of responsibility and the ethic of conviction. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know the piece, and I was wondering what you think about Weber's um, analysis of politics as a vocation. Uh, I'll just take yeah. that one question. If you get the microphone down to the if you want to answer that Yeah, one, sure. Uh, no, I mean, I, I mean, Weber was saying something very similar to, to Machiavelli, who was saying that his point was that if you just simply were a good person as Prime Minister, you may well, or leader or prince or whatever else, you wouldn't be making necessarily the right decisions for the state as a whole. You may be personally very moral in doing that, but you may be leading the state into disaster. Uh, so I think he, uh, so your criticism, I guess, of, of Tony Blair would be that he was too idealistic and not realist enough, uh, which I think would be a fair criticism, but one he would probably like, because he would like to be thought, I would think, to be an idealist rather than a realist. He thought he was doing those things for idealistic reasons. And you want your politicians to be idealistic. You do not want cynical, uh, overly realistic politicians. You need cynical, realistic chiefs of staff and idealistic prime ministers. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. How, how did you manage to get the reform of prime ministers' questions through so easily? It was totally to the disadvantage of the leader of the opposition. I mean, one appearance per week or one media TV news coverage rather than two. Speaker Boothroyd, widely lauded, appears to have been very partisan in letting it through and not protecting the, the rights of the House. And the second point, just very briefly, is you say Tony Blair was resolute, strong, uh, compared with Gordon Brown being indecisive and irresolute. And yet, of course, the Prime Minister's great power is not just to appoint, but to sack. Why did he not sack or move Brown? That just shows his weakness and his irresolution. Okay. Uh, take both of those. Now, on Prime Minister's questions, the answer is a bit like the UN Security Council membership. When everyone's flat on their back, you can make these changes. So it was possible to appoint the members of the UN Security Council in immediately aftermath of the Second World War because no one else was able to complain about it. The Germans and Japanese could scarcely make a fuss about not being on the UN Security Council. Now when you try and change it when everyone is ready to fight about it, you can't even bring in a country like India or Brazil because everyone else will stop them doing so. So the reason we were able to bring about the changes was its immediate aftermath of the election. No one was in a position to argue about it. The opposition was licking its wounds. The now opposition former government was licking its wounds. So we were able to bring about those changes. In fact, it's not that bad for the the leader of the opposition because he now gets to ask many more questions than he was allowed to ask when it was twice a week which gives him if he is forensic which they rarely are more of an opportunity to actually probe a prime minister properly and have the follow-up question because it's easy if you're prime minister to bat off two questions if you've got to face six questions it's really quite hard to avoid saying the same thing again and again it saves you a lot of time and actually you don't really want your prime minister wasting what he meant was prime minister couldn't leave london when parliament was sitting because you have to be there 
uh, Tuesday and uh, Thursday, and you had to be there the night before preparing for it as well. So, and you had cabinet on Thursday. So, there's very little opportunity to actually leave London and go to any other part of the country, let alone travel and do foreign policy. So, it's a, a big plus for prime ministers, and you won't see them changing it. I assure you that. Uh, in terms of, of sacking, I mean, I would, think, I would say two different things. So one is. Machiavelli was certainly absolutely clear that you should be very uh, resolute in, in your um, uh, ruthlessness in sacking people. And of course, Tony Blair sacked his mentor, Derry Irvin, uh, in a way that must have been very, very difficult indeed. The person who introduced him to his wife gave him his first job. He sacked him against his will, and it was very, very difficult. But William Hague did make one criticism of Tony when he, when he stood down as leader of the opposition in uh, 2001. And he said that one thing he had to say about Tony in particular was he hadn't been ruthless enough in the way that he dealt with his cabinet and in sacking people. And I think that is probably true. We made a mistake, for example, in appointing the elected shadow cabinet. The rules of the Labour Party said that everyone who's elected to shadow cabinet needed to be in the cabinet, and so we did that. It was a big mistake. It held reform back for several years. We didn't really need to do that, and we shouldn't have, shouldn't have done it. The Gordon Brown thing is, is a different issue. I mean, in my view, clearly, as you can tell, he should have sacked him straight away. He would have created all sorts of problems, however, which is why he, he didn't. Firstly, you'd have had to explain why you were sacking him, and since we never made public what was actually going on privately, it would have looked like a petty act of spite or jealousy to get rid of him like that. You'd have put someone on the back benches who would have been the centre of opposition, although he actually had relatively little support in the PLP, he would have been the centre of anyone who was opposed for any other, any other reason uh, on the back benches, and you therefore might have brought an end to Tony Blair's Prime Ministership earlier. So I don't think it was an act of weakness, it was an act of political calculation. In my view, the wrong calculation, but a calculation he made. There is an equation in British parliamentary politics which actually brings down leaders in the end as hubris does, which is the appointed versus the disappointed. You have power as Prime Minister because you can appoint 120 people to ministerial jobs. Over time, you've sacked many of those people, and they're still there. They're not like a company. When you sack someone, they go away. They're still in the boardroom. They can still complain. They're still able to vote. There are some who you're never going to appoint because they're too mad or too old or whatever it might be, and they get very fed up with you too. And eventually, as Mrs. Thatcher found, the disappointed outweigh the appointed, and your support in the parliamentary party is finished. Yeah, I'm going to take a couple more from over here, then I'll come upstairs. Yeah, there's two over there. Hi. Um, I have to confess I'm a novice when it comes to Machiavelli, but uh, you've inspired me to go do some more research. Uh, my question um, concerns uh, the anecdotes, I guess, that you provided. It sounds like Machiavelli's concept of power is very self-oriented. Um, it's focused on people of power, positions of power, how you negotiate those social dynamics. Uh, but when you take a step back and look at a broader context like, say, the social influence of tradition and the ability of a, of a broad idea like tradition to normalize certain thought process, that, in effect, is still a, a demonstration of power um, if, if we're talking about influencing people towards a desired outcome within known constraints and uh, in a known context. Are we still talking about a demonstration of power in the Machiavellian sense? Was he concerned with systems like this, or was it more focused on the people in the positions of power? Uh, it, it was wider than just about individuals and power. I mean, he, he, um, he talks about systems. For example, his attitude to religion is interesting. He was writing at the time of Martin Luther, but he, and, and a very, very corrupt church. Uh, and he did, but he was, wasn't interested in... Uh, the religious debates at all. He wasn't an atheist. He just saw religion, a bit in a Marxian sense, as a system of social control. He saw Roman religion, as it had existed, as a very good form of social control, and the current church in his time as a very bad form of social control. So he saw, he talked about systems, and he talked um, about the power of ideas too. I, I didn't come on to this, but 
It's quite interesting because really Machiavelli foresaw spin doctors. He talked about the, 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 the public see what is in front of their face, not what is behind. You must present yourself as much stronger than you are. So he thought about the power of ideas and how you could use ideas as, as useful ways to uh, convince people. So I wouldn't say he was a modern in every sense that we would think of it, but he was much wider than just talking about it, the power of individuals or individual relations. You said earlier, you said earlier that you thought Tony Blair was one of four or five politicians in the last hundred years yeah. uh, that actually followed Machiavelli, and I just wondered who you think the other few. I, mean, were. I didn't say they followed Machiavelli, no. who I thought were great prime ministers, oh, sorry, because, yes, thought, yeah. because they had this crucial point that Machiavelli talks about, Fortuna, and the ability to exploit their Fortuna. Sometimes and, you have some leaders who have. Uh, luck and don't have the nice to exploit it and more often you have uh, them who have no, no luck. I think the other for, for me it would clearly be um, Churchill, uh, Lloyd George, I think I would say Mrs Thatcher and Attlee would be my other four. Uh, is anybody upstairs? It's quiet up there today? Okay, fine. It's okay. Is that somebody standing up? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to be a balconist. Yeah, hi, please. Hi, Jonathan. Um, I just wanted to ask whether you thought, um, given the new context of kind of coalition politics and a potential referendum, whether Machiavelli's ideas of strong leadership are kind of changed in that context. Okay. Hmm. Well, I mean, if you think of Angela Merkel in Germany, most people I think would say she's a strong leader, and yet she is presiding over a coalition government, having presided over a coalition government of a different stripe before. So I'm not sure coalitions stop you being a strong leader. In fact, they may make you a stronger leader. For example, David Cameron has clearly taken some leads out of Machiavelli's book by using the coalition quite ruthlessly to jettison a bunch of loony ideas that his party had foisted on him for his manifesto and get rid of those, and also to, to be able to demonstrate that he had the support of more of a majority of the people, because had he been Prime Minister with just the support of 36% of the public, he would be in trouble. Now you can claim he has 60% support. So I think being in a coalition doesn't necessarily mean you can't be a strong leader. Okay, as we're finding out. Yes, sir, please. Thank you. Um, a film that taught me a lot about power relations was The Godfather. Um, oh, sorry. It's okay. um, and um, I was just wondering whether you have any advice to a young Tom Hagen or a young conciliary. I mean, you've talked about obsequiousness and, and realism, but is there anything further that you'd like to add to that list? <laughs> you don't have to answer that. I, I'm not sure if I'm well enough versed in The Godfather, but I do know people who see the whole of life through the, 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 the vision of The Godfather, so maybe that would be an alternative to Machiavelli. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a bummer off. Okay. Um, I, got, I have some other questions. Question over here. Yeah, so we, we, oh, give, give it to the gentleman there, because it's the one mic problem. Please, sir. Do you think... Um, that the Prime Minister is rather too young uh, these days. When you think of the age of the Prime Ministers, Macmillan and uh, um, Anthony Eden, Tony Blair himself should not expect to be Prime Minister. I believe he expected to have a, uh, a Home Secretary or Chancellorship, first of all, and later on and, uh, as part of the position of Prime Minister. Do you think that a Prime Minister should be older, say later 50s, um, and 60, and at the middle rank uh, position in the cabinet in the 40s. Sounds like sound advice to me. Um, well, I was going to say, speaking as someone who's 54, I can see the reason in your argument, but the, actually, no, I don't. I don't think, I actually think it's a good thing to have 
uh, a change of generation from time to time. I mean, Tony Blair, when he came in, was a, was a young Prime Minister. Um, Bill Clinton, when he came in as President, was a young Prime Minister. I think uh, David Cameron is young, David Miliband is young. So I think there is a case for a change of generation and a chance to have a new generation of leader uh, in, a sort of, in a sudden way. And I also, I'm not a great believer in the notion you can be trained to be Prime Minister. Although it would be useful to study history, I think doing the other jobs doesn't necessarily train you to be, a, to be a great leader. It may help you understand the machinery of government. But on the whole, you can't tell that someone's going to be a great leader until they've, they've done it. Certainly none of Tony Blair's contemporaries at university would have ever have spotted him as a prime minister, let alone a great prime minister. So I, d I don't think you can tell until people have actually done the job, which is why I think it's a mistake to rush into judging people too early. But I'm not, even despite having become old, I don't think I'm in favour of having to have old prime ministers. <laughs> yeah, please, sir. Um, tonight you, you mentioned a couple, of, um, a couple of things that one, an individual can exercise in order to yield power in the modern world. Can, do you think that the abilities that you talk about, can they be learned by that? I mean, you, can you take 10 students from LSE and teach them these qualities or are some of these qualities, uh, are some uh, innate, some people are born with some of these and can be better leaders? Um, I think it's really, it's, it's both. That the, what Machiavelli argued, and I would go along with him on this, is there are two qualities that a leader needs to be born with, and you cannot just learn. And one of those is courage. You can't suddenly become courageous. Gordon Brown, interestingly, wrote a book before he became Prime Minister entitled Courage, which is one of the ways of sort of flagging up what struck me as his main failing. I don't think actually his bullying and all the rest of it was such a big deal. That's what you have in politics. It was the lack of courage that was the real problem. So I think you have to be born with courage and you have to be born with the political instinct I called, in, or Machiavelli called intelligence. So I think you need to be born with those two. But the other sort of um, uh, qualities I think you can learn. You can obviously learn competence. Communications, oratory is an interesting example. Bill Clinton, when he started in politics, was really a terrible speaker. If you remember at the 1988 Democratic right. Convention, he was uh, the only applause he got was when he said, and finally, a huge <laughs> cheer went up in the, in the, in the, in the, in, in the place. And I actually went up with him, Bill Clinton, that is, in 91, when he first went campaigning in New Hampshire, and he was not a good speaker. But he became a good speaker by training himself to be one. Tony Blair, likewise, as a barrister, was ten had a tendency as a, a, early in his political career just to read out texts. It was useless. But then by training, he became a really rather good, good speaker. So I think you can learn those sort of skills. Actually, funny enough, I think you can learn charisma. I, I know this may sound bizarre, but um, Max Weber, who we were just talking about earlier, talked about the routinization of charisma. And even people like John Major or Gorbachev, who are personally rather unprepossessing people, can turn heads in a room when they come in by the charisma of their office. So, I mean, I think it helps to be an actor monkey. And I always used to say the one thing you need to know about Tony is what his father says about him, which is that when they were on the ship going out to Australia, when Tony's father became a law lecturer in Australia, is he got up in front, Tony got up in front of the whole ship's company as a baby and danced and danced till his nappy dropped off. <laughs> and I always think that if you knew that about him, you'd know that he'd have this acting ability that would give him the charisma. In your book, you strongly endorse the Machiavellian philosophy of um, if a government has to make a, a permanent change, it has to be done in one fell swoop. Uh, would you apply the same analogy to what the coalition government is doing now in terms of budget cuts? Yeah, I mean, I think they've thought about it very much in those, those sort of terms. I think they've thought that um, they will make all of the difficult choices now in the hope that if the economy turns up, they can claim it was all because of that later on, rather than having to make a series of piecemeal changes. I actually also think that they won't... Um, 
I think there's a certain amount of expectation management going on. I think what they've been doing is making it sound very, very blood-curdling, so that when they announce the cuts and they're not quite as bad as they were expected to be, and when they're staged over four years, they're seen as, uh, as a big sigh of relief, and therefore they uh, get away without too much in terms of demonstrations and opposition to it. So I think they are thinking about it very Machiavellian way, yes. And there was a question up in the balcony. Yes, yeah. I was just um, wondering to what extent, given the feud of Gordon Brown, David Miliband was used as a, a stopper to the heir apparent status of Gordon Brown, and whether in future only special advisers will be able to go for the leadership <laughs> in parties. Yeah, uh, um, not enough is the answer to your first question. For example, we thought about uh, Tony thought about making David Miliband foreign secretary in 2000 and. Uh, and six, when um, when uh, Jack Straw went, and we'd been intending to appoint Charles Clark as Foreign Secretary, and then we couldn't because there was a scandal in the Home Office. And so we thought about putting David Miliband in then as Foreign Secretary as a balance to Gordon Brown. But then Tony decided that actually he would just be destroyed by the Gordon Brown death machine if he'd put him into, into that position. Because Gordon had adopted a policy which I called the King Herod strategy when dealing with other potential leaders. Every time one appeared, like Alan Milburn, they would be murdered at birth before they could ever get off the ground. So it would have finished David Miliband off. On your, your second point about um, uh, special advisors, again, I, don't, I know people say it's terrible that all these people are special advisors, but uh, I don't necessarily believe it is uh, essential to have had experience of doing other things. And I certainly think the professionalization of politics is something you see all around the world. I think you should judge it on the results, because there may be good special advisors and bad special advisors, rather than simply the fact they were special advisors. You mentioned that uh, Tony Blair managed to grow from Bambi to superstar. Uh, Stardom. <laughs> Stardom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> same thing, same thing. Yeah. Okay. With Stardom walked in the room. Um, but what makes a politician a star is the media. So any advisors on working with the media, Actually, yeah, I had or maybe mistakes which were made by Tony Blair working with the media? Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, actually, the, the point was the, that um, uh, uh, it wasn't that Tony Blair changed from being Bambi to Stalin. It was actually the media who started off calling him Bambi, a deer caught in the headlights, couldn't make up his own mind, followed popularity rather than making decisions. Later, they decided he was Stalin, ignoring public opinion, not doing what they wanted. So it was their interpretation of him rather than that he changed from one to the other. But you're absolutely right about, about the media. The, um, it is, politicians make their name, become to be leaders through the media by being noticed by the media. And my contention is they actually take the media too seriously. Um, the, there's an interesting uh, distinction between, for example, Mrs. Thatcher and Tony Blair, who didn't read the newspapers day to day. Mrs. Thatcher had a press summary presented to her but wouldn't look at the newspapers. Tony Blair would be briefed orally on the press. He would not read the newspapers day to day. John Major used to read the newspapers assiduously. He would, when he would come and stay in the embassy in Washington when I was there, he'd take all the newspapers into his bedroom, lock the door, pour over them, and they said terrible things about him. And he, he, he really dwelt on it, really got under his skin and, and made him upset. If I were a politician, I would concentrate much more on doing things than worrying so much about, about the press. And Machiavelli would support me on that, saying the utmost importance is what is to be done, not is what is to be said. I've got a couple more here, moving towards the end. But, uh, there's a couple along the same line here, please. 
Yeah, please. Yeah, no. yeah, first of all, I come from Florence, so I'm really pleased to hear something about Machiavelli. We, but apart from that, I just wanted to ask, uh, what, was, what kind of role fate and religious fate uh, played in the decision Tony Blair made? Because he was quite adamant when he resigned that religion played an important role in his life overall. So I wanted to, to know that if, if that was an important part in the decision he made. Thank you. You mean, you mean religion as such, or faith? You were talking about both, but... Yeah, it's religious faith, actually. Faith, that's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, for me, it was always a mystery, because I have no religion, and uh, I don't understand it. But yes, it was interesting. He, di he did have a, uh, a religious faith. He would never sort of raise any issues as a religious faith. But you could see there was a certain... It's what I talked about, his Messiah complex. He was convinced that he would was right on certain issues. That was partly as a result of his religious faith that he was convinced that he was right. But I say it was a mystery to me. It was quite useful, however, in dealing with Ian Paisley when we were doing Northern Ireland because <laughs> he used it as a way of establishing a relationship with Paisley because we were told that he needed to win him over. So instead of talking about politics, they would talk about faith and I would go into the room hoping they'd resolve some issue and they'd say they'd been discussing grace or some issue like that and I would find little pamphlets he'd left behind like often there were little tra religious tracts that he'd left for Leo to convert him into religion so for me religion played one useful role but I'm a bit of a cynic on it but yes it clearly clearly um, influenced him what he did right <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> really funny story I knew Ian Paisley so I can very funny Tony Blair said that, well, said that after his, um, he published his memoirs, that um, he didn't think that Gordon Brown lost the election because of his personality and his lack of charisma, perceived lack of charisma, but rather because of um, policy differences. What is your opinion on that? Um, hmm. that, that um, I mean, he lost the election because he didn't govern or run from the centre of politics and the sad truth of British politics is if you want to win from the left you have to run from the centre. You cannot run from the left and that's uh, something we, we as Labour Party have tested to destruction over a long <laughs> period of time. Um, uh, so I don't think, you, I think he's right. It was about policy, not about, about, or about positioning rather than about personality. But there is also this thing about cut through and I think there was a real problem when Gordon couldn't decide about the election gave a press conference and said that he never intended to have an election and hadn't been looking at the opinion polls. And I said, I had the moment of cut through and people looked and they thought, why are you saying that? And th th there is a, a time when people take a judgment about people. And when you've got an impression in the public minds about a politician like that, it's incredibly difficult to change it. Okay. I think uh, I'll take one last question up there and then I'm going to call proceedings to an end. Yes, sir, please. Can um, adherents of Machiavelli, old and new, ever have respect for democracy? How do they feel towards it? Uh, is it a ball and chain to be cast off, or can they genuinely feel appreciation towards it? So who? Adherents of Machiavelli. Um, well, I say, Machiavelli was rather interesting about, about democracy. He, he thought the Roman Republic was the apogee of yeah. hu human uh, political success. And he said that the voice of the people is like the voice of God. They never get it wrong. And as I say, he talked about 400 years of electing the tribunes in Rome. He said they only got it wrong four times. So Machiavelli actually would be a big supporter. Of, I mean, it wasn't democracy as we'd understand it, but actually of the, 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 the people having a say, he'd be very much in, in favour of. 
Um, but as I say, I'm not advocating people should be Machiavellian, simply that they should be realistic and look at what is rather than what's imagined to be. Yeah, and, and read Machiavelli. Yeah. Okay. Merci and my book too. <laughs> I, I, I was going to come to that, Jonathan. Don't worry. Don't worry. Anyway, uh, firstly, some thanks. Firstly, to, thanks to Niccolo uh, Machiavelli, um, who, having written a book which couldn't be published in his own lifetime, um, quite remarkable. Uh, the term Machiavellian, as I think we all know, has entered into the lexicon over the years, and it's been so misunderstood. And firstly, I think, you know, what you've done tonight, what many scholars have tried to do, uh, many, many scholars have tried to do to decouple the term Machiavellianism uh, from Machiavelli. So thanks again to old good old Niccolo. I've always loved him anyway. Um, thanks to, again to a great LSE audience. You all turn up in vast numbers to all of our events, which is wonderful and ask great questions. And finally, and thanks to, to Jonathan for bringing together Machiavelli, Tony Blair, Brown, everybody else over the last 10 years. The book signing will take place outside. I hope you queue up in vast numbers, put money in this poor man's hands. <laughs> he is actually writing a third book. Perhaps you could advertise that as well, Jonathan. Well, I'm writing a third and a fourth book. I'm writing a book about talking to terrorists, a, a radio series I did during the summer, and then I'm talking about, I'm going to write a justification of um, liberal interventionism, trying to look at Kosovo and Iraq again, great. which may be more challenging for the audience. <laughs> well, that's great. Anyway, I think we could put our hands together and say thanks, Jonathan.